You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Because we have received this ministry through his mercy, we do not lose heart. We know him, of course, as St. Paul, the Apostle Paul. But when we first meet him, he's just Saul of Tarsus, and he's no saint. What was he? Well, he was a zealot. He was a purist. Uh, he was an activist. We would call him a terrorist. He presided over the death of the first Christian martyr. He hunted down other followers of Jesus and put them in prison. He was ruthless, ambitious, proud, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he said, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. It's like somebody saying, I'm not just an American, I'm a Texan. Uh, Special pride, don't mess with Texas. He was also a comer. Nothing could stop him. The sky was the limit. Until one day on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus and Jesus of Nazareth came face to face and Saul's life was turned upside down forever. Not only was he converted, he was also called. In fact, his conversion and his calling were coterminous. His apostolic mission was to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ into every nook and cranny of the Roman Empire and especially to the Gentiles. Now, you know, Paul is one of those characters in Christian history, and there are several like this. You either love him or you hate him. Nietzsche hated him, called him a disangelist, a bringer of bad news. That stuff about love, forgiveness, when I am weak, then I'm strong. Nonsense, said Nietzsche. Others have extolled him, turned him into a hero, a super apostle, named cathedrals and basilicas and academies after him. Whether Paul is a hero or a villain, what is often not recognized is how terribly vulnerable Paul was. How he was beset by affliction and suffering, how often he felt defeated. How many times he wanted to just quit, give up, lose heart. Of all the letters Paul wrote, maybe the most emotional is 2 Corinthians. Romans is the most theological, a tightly woven argument centered on justification. Galatians is full of thunder and bluster. Jerome once said, St. Jerome said, when he read the letters of Paul, he could hear thunder, a thunderstorm. And in Galatians, Paul is at his most exasperated. Oh, foolish Galatians, he says, or as one translator put it, my dear idiots. I can hear Paul saying that. First Corinthians, he's herding cats. So is Christ divided? In whose name were you baptized? But here, in our text from 2 Corinthians, his heart is on his sleeve. We have opened wide our hearts to you. We are 
not withholding our affection from you. You open wide your hearts also. The tone is that of a spurned lover. Make room for us in your hearts, he pleads. Can't you feel the, the tenderness, the tearing, uh, the compassion, the raw nerve of a soul in agony? And yes, there's hardships, bad times, troubles. Paul lists some of these. Beatings, imprisonment, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger. We have been so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself, he said. Troubles, conflicts without, division among. And let's not forget Romans 7. I don't know everything Romans 7 means, a highly controversial passage in New Testament scholarship. But Paul talks as though he were speaking as a divided self. A kind of spiritual schizophrenia going on. I want to do right, but I can't do right. I don't know what to do. Up and down. And we should never forget that, as Thomas Burton said, we all have demons that hang like vampires on the soul. Well, I think for Paul, the Christian life was something like Charles Haddon Spurgeon described it. Now, if Baptist had saints, Spurgeon would be one. But you know, I have heard Andrew quote Spurgeon from this pulpit, so I feel perfectly free to bring him into this sermon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once described the Christian life. He said, all the way to heaven, we shall get there by the skin of our teeth. We will not go along sailing with sails swelling to the breeze like seabirds with their fair white wings. But we shall proceed full often with sails rent to ribbons, with the masts creaking and the ship's pumps at work both by night and day. And we shall reach the city at the shutting of the gates and not one hour before. I think Paul would have resonated with Spurgeon's description of the Christian life. But he says, because we have received this Ministry through the mercy of God. Despite everything, we do not lose heart. Now, given everything Paul has told us, we have a question. Why not? The answer is in our gospel lesson for today from Luke 9. Today, in the calendar of the church, it is the Feast of the Transfiguration. It's the last Sunday of Epiphany and also the last Sunday before Lent. Why should we not lose heart? Three things. First of all, there is someone to listen to. On that Mount of Transfiguration, we think it was Mount Tabor perhaps, there was a cloud that enveloped the three disciples who were there with Jesus and from the cloud a voice that said, This is my... Son, my beloved one, my chosen one, listen to him. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Paul says that in Romans 10, 17. That was Martin Luther's favorite verse in all of the Bible. Ears are the proper organ of a Christian person, Luther said. 
And that's why in a gospel-focused church like this, there's so much emphasis placed on preaching and teaching and listening to the Holy Scriptures. The Bible is not a philosophy of religion, though it speaks truly about matters of ultimate reality. Nor is it a manual of behavior, a code of ethics, though it says a lot about how we should live and relate to one another in the world. But the Bible is the place where we encounter the living God. The old Puritans had a quaint way of talking about this. It's quaint to us. It might have been perfectly normal to them. They called the Bible a trysting place. You know that term? goes back to Shakespeare's day. A trysting place, a rendezvous where people in love meet to be with one another. Have you never a hill Mizar to remember, asked John Bunyan? Have you forgot the clothes, the milk house, the stable, the barn where God did visit your soul? Remember also the word, the word I say, upon which the Lord hath caused you to hope. I love that collect, collect for the second Sunday of Advent. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your Holy Word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. There's someone to listen to. And we do not lose hope. We do not lose heart. Because we have heard that voice in the Holy Scriptures. But there's also more. There's a glory to be seen. Much of the spiritual life in the Bible is about speaking and listening. This is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. And the response that we ought to give is that of the young Samuel in the temple. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. But there's something else on the Mount of Transfiguration. There is a glory to be seen. Paul calls it the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. T.S. Eliot put it like this, words, words strain, crack, sometimes break under the burden, under the tension, they slip, slide, perish, decay with imprecision, will not stay in place, will not stay still. Thy face, O Lord, do I seek, says the psalmist, hide not thy face from me. Or that beautiful ironic benediction we heard today, from Dean Pearson, number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Thy face do I seek. Hide not thy face from me. When I was growing up, I only occasionally spent time in the country, usually in the summers with my grandmother and grandfather. Lived out on a farm. I didn't have telephones. I didn't have a television. 
I wondered how I survived for three months. But when the day's work was done, they would be sitting on the front porch in the rocking chairs, rocking back and forth. And they didn't say much. They were hard of hearing, so they couldn't understand one another when they did speak. But every now and then, I would notice my grandfather would put down the paper he had been reading. My grandmother would put down the needlework she had been doing. And for a few seconds, maybe a small eternity, their eyes would be caught across that porch in a long, loving look. More than a glance. Thy face do I seek, O Lord. Hide not thy face from me. There is a level of communion with God that takes place only in the long, loving look. And of course, on the mountain, the, there were three disciples. The others were somewhere else. Peter, James, and John were there. And we're reminded that this experience with God is not something that is a solo event. So God has given us the church. We have the Holy Scriptures. We have the Holy Spirit. And we have the Holy Church. The one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church that God has given to us as a place where we can seek His face, hear His word, and respond with love and forgiveness to all those we know. Well, it's about time to begin Lent. It's a time of thinking. It's a time of praying. It's a time of waiting. It's a time of listening. And it's a time of looking. Thy face, O Lord, do I seek. Hide not thy face from me. Let us pray. Meet us, Lord, in this place and in this time. Draw us close to you, to your great love, to your never-failing mercy. And help us, we pray, to seek your face, to listen to your voice, and so be transfigured, transformed. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.